بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله this tonight is, inshallah, the final session for Module 10. After this, we have Module 11. We won't take any breaks because we want to finish this by mid-October, the whole program, inshallah. So we are right at the end after this tonight, inshallah. So this is the last part of Module 10 on heart matters covering what is Fard'ain knowledge pertaining to matters of the heart in the degree of Ihsan, or the level of Ihsan. As we mentioned in the Hadith of Jibreel, there's the three degrees, the three levels. Islam referring to the outward, the rituals and the interactions, Iman, your beliefs, and Ihsan, the matters of the heart. Module 11, inshallah, will look at a lot of contemporary issues. Uh, I thought to make it Aqidah 102, but I'll just make it all miscellaneous because there's a number of different issues that are not all together related, but they are all things that we should also know that are fard'ain. So this being the last class for Module 10, we left off on the virtue of gratitude. I was supposed to cover that last week, but we ran out of time and... Tonight, inshallah, we'll cover that virtue of gratitude and then the three other spiritual virtues that we require to know about. And last week's session and tonight's session all, are all, is all about the tahliya or the positive spiritual virtues that a person has to inculcate and build within themselves. Prior to this, we were talking about the takhliya, or the bad things that have to be removed from the heart. Envy, jealousy, rancor, hatred, suspicion, uh, fear of poverty, all of these different things. So, going to gratitude, we mentioned that uh, last week we were talking about sabr, patience or fortitude. And we said that these two qualities of fortitude, sabr, and gratitude are always together, right? There's no one person who has nothing but good in their life for which they have shukr and nothing to have patience over. Likewise, there's no one who's struggling with things in life who has to have patience, except that they also have blessings in their life that require shukr. So these two twin qualities are inseparable from one another. And this is mentioned explicitly in the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, when he said how amazing, how astounding is the affair of the believer and all of their affairs are astounding if they receive good they have gratitude and that's better for them and if they are tested with an affliction then they have patience and that is better for them so this is the counterpart to sabr that we ended on uh, last week. So what is shukr? Uh, like the other terms, it has a definition. 
Uh, and I give you here the definition mentioned by the Sheikh Ahmed bin Ajiba al-Hassani. Uh, and he mentions in his collection of definitions uh, called Mi'raj al-Tashawwuf, he says that shukr is the delight felt by the heart after obtaining a favor, a ni'mah, while using the bodily limbs in obedience to the one who bestows gifts, the mun'im, and to testify or acknowledge with humility to the bounty of the one who bestows gifts. That's a bit of a mouthful, but I think we already know what shukr is. But here he is explaining that it is a feeling in the heart and that it also involves the body. You you express gratitude through the body as well and you testify to it with your tongue. So in that definition, he's telling us that shukr is not just saying alhamdulillah. It's not just saying uh, shukran, right? It's not just on the tongue. It's the heart, the tongue, and the limbs. And that's uh, what we will explain in the next slide. So the ulama say that shukr, gratitude, is linked to these three. The heart, the tongue, and the limbs. Uh, Ibn Hamdun, whom we quoted a few weeks ago when we talked about showing off, riyah, he says that when it comes to shukr of the heart, it is holding the belief that all blessings, all favors are from Allah. And that is mentioned in the words of Allah Ta'ala in the Qur'an. وَمَا بِكُمْ مِن نِعْمَةٍ فَمِنَ اللَّهِ Whatever blessings you have are from Allah. So the heart acknowledges the blessing, recognizes the blessing, feels appreciation for the blessing. If you go to the definition of Ibn Ajiba, we'll go back to it. Notice he says it is the delight. It's the farah and surur, this feeling of happiness and delight uh, after receiving a blessing from Allah Ta'ala. So it's in the heart. That is the root of shukr. And whatever is in the heart of that joy of the blessing has to be expressed with the tongue. And that's where we get the second level of shukr, which is praising and thanking Allah Ta'ala verbally. You say alhamdulillah wa shukrulillah in different forms of uh, thanksgiving, as we say, expressing gratitude. And included in this expression of gratitude, the ulama say, is at-tahdith bi-ni'amillah. At-tahdith means to speak about the blessings of Allah in your life. Where is that coming from? Speaking about the blessings of Allah. وَأَمَّا بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ فَحَدِّثْ In Surah Duha, Allah Ta'ala tells us, He's addressing the Prophet ﷺ, As for the blessings of your Lord, فَحَدِّثْ Speak about them. So when you, when you speak about the blessings of Allah Ta'ala, you are not bragging and boasting and dunking on others who may not have the blessings you have, but you are speaking about them because you are Thankful for them, right? That is included in expressing gratitude. And, you know, one has to be mindful of who they share their blessings with, right? You, you have to be mindful of that. You know, every person who has a blessing uh, will have enviers. You have to be mindful of that. 
but it is good to speak about the blessings of Allah Ta'ala, right? Something good happens to you in your life. You go to your husband or your wife, you go to your friends, your family, you tell people, you're, you're happy. And people who love you, they're happy that you're happy. They're happy that you received a blessing, right? One of the great things that we find in the Islamic tradition, and I've spoken about this a few times, is that we have ulama in our history who applied this verse in a very direct way. We have what is perhaps the most famous book on this. We have Lata'iful Minan Wal Akhlaq by Al Imam Abdul Wahhab Sha'rani, the great Egyptian scholar. This book is about 800 pages, at least in the edition that I have, 800 pages. And the entire book is about him speaking about the blessings of Allah that Allah has given him. And it's not bragging and boasting. He's not saying, you know, I have this and I have that and you don't have it. He's saying, among the blessings of Allah Ta'ala that he has given me is this, 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 and this. And when he mentions the blessing, you, you find that he's not just saying, oh, this is the blessing. He's saying, this is the blessing and this is how I've used it. And this is the kind of akhlaq or character uh, one should have with that blessing, right? So, he, and he has a lot of things. So he'll say things like, uh, among the blessings of Allah upon me is that I never, uh, I never had the need and I never wanted to ever ask for uh, money or receive money from any government official. Right, he's talking in early Ottoman Egypt. He said, from the blessings of Allah, as I've never been in a position where I needed to take any money from government officials. And then from there, he goes on to talk about why that's not a good idea in the first place. And he talks about that from the perspective of the hadith narrations and the way of the early generations who would distance themselves from the rulers, ulama in particular. That's one example. Uh, Imam Suyuti did the same thing. He has a book uh, along the same lines, and, and there's a very clear link between Imam Sha'ran and Imam Suyuti. Imam Suyuti came after. Uh, and it's also speaking about Allah's blessings. So you find ulama who did that. Another kind of shukr of the tongue is not just thanking Allah Ta'ala and speaking about His blessings, but it's also thanking people, showing appreciation to people for the good things they do. When you thank the people, you are thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is based on the hadith where the Prophet sallallahu says, لَمْ يَشْكُرِ مَنْ لَمْ يَشْكُرِ النَّاسِ He who does not show gratitude to the people has not truly shown gratitude to Allah ta'ala. So the scholars say that this can, this can mean two things. It means... Either, if you don't thank people for the good things they do in your life, you're not truly thanking Allah Ta'ala, because Allah Ta'ala created them and made them the vehicle for His blessing. You know, so when that person who comes and helps you move furniture out of your house, you thank them because they are the vehicle by which Allah made that move easier. It's Allah's blessing. And that was the wasita or the means or the vehicle for his blessing. So that's one meaning. If you don't thank them, you're not truly thanking Allah. 
Another meaning is that if a person uh, is not in the habit of thanking people and having gratitude towards them, then it is most likely the case that they're also not thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because where there is ingratitude with creation, there will be ingratitude with Allah. And where there is gratitude with creation for the good things they do, there will be gratitude with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of that is a part of gratitude with the tongue as a spiritual virtue. Uh, so we have the heart, we have the tongue, and then we have the limbs. And this is the one where most people struggle with. Right? A person can feel happy about the blessings. So they have it in their heart. They can say Alhamdulillah. They can thank people. They can talk about the Allah's blessings in their life. But when we get to the third one, that's where it gets challenging. And that is the shukr of the limbs, the body. And this is taken directly from the Qur'an, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, Where Allah ta'ala says, exercise gratitude. So i'malu is the command to do, you know, to do gratitude, do shukr, you know, as an action. I'malu, exercise gratitude, O progeny of Dawood. So this is the using the limbs to express gratitude. How do you do that? Well, you use the blessings for what they're for. Allah gives us the blessing of hearing. We show gratitude by using the hearing for ways that are pleasing to Allah. And we don't use them to the best of our ability for anything that is displeasing to Allah Ta'ala. If we do that, we make tawbah, we seek forgiveness, and we recognize that we're misusing the blessings. Right? That's the hard one because a person can easily misuse the infinite blessings Allah has given them by using them for other than their purpose. And this is the harder of the three levels of gratitude. But knowing this is fard because if you don't know what gratitude is, how can you be a, a, a gracious person? How can you be a grateful person? And you have to know that it's in the heart, the tongue, and the limbs. Uh, and, I mean, that's really it, right? And as they say, uh, it's, the, it's the simple, the simple things are often the hardest, right? It's easy to say this, but it's harder to practice it. Most people find number one and two easy. If they're people of shukr generally, they find one and two easy. But when it comes to using the blessings properly and not misusing them, that's where we struggle and falter. So after gratitude, gratitude was meant to be covered last week, but we ran out of time. I wanted to link it with sabr. So the next slide is where we were supposed to start tonight. And that is fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, just like sabr is linked with shukr, fear is also linked with another virtue. What virtue is it linked with? Hope. The two are inseparable. The early, Muslim, the early Muslims among the Sadaf, they would say that the believer is like the bird that has the two wings. In order for the bird to fly, it has to have two wings. If it only has one wing, it's either not taking off in flight, and if it loses one wing in flight, what's going to happen mid-flight? It's going to crash. What are these two wings? The wing of hope and the wing of fear. If you have only hope, then you're astray. If you have only fear, you're also astray, right? Because if you only have hope, then what do you have? You have al-aman min makrillah, right? You have this negative quality of feeling safe from 
the plotting of Allah, feeling safe from Allah's punishment. If you only have fear, then you have despair of Allah's mercy. So you can't have just one, you have to have both. But we start with fear, and the reason why we start with fear before hope is because also it is the way of the early Muslims that when they would talk about these things, they would always talk about the things that induce fear first. And then they would talk about the things that induce hope. They would always end on that positive note so that people are not despairing. You know, imagine the person gives a sermon, a talk, and it's just about Jahannam. It's just about how we're all so terrible and, you know, you know, we're not doing very good. And a vivid description of hell is given. And then that's it. The khutbah's over. He prays salat and you go home. How are you going to feel? You're not going to feel too good. That should be counterbalanced a little bit by talking about Allah's rahmah, Allah's love, hope in Allah Ta'ala. So that's why they would always end with that. And you find this in the Qur'an as well. Minus two verses of the Qur'an where Allah mentions hope first and then fear. But in most of the verses where hellfire and paradise are mentioned or Allah's punishment and mercy are mentioned, mercy is mentioned after, forgiveness is mentioned after it ends on a mention of something positive. Not that talk of hell is not positive, but I mean something that inspires hope. So let's talk about fear of Allah. It is fardain. It is individually obligatory on Muslims to know about this virtue so that they can inculcate it into their lives and to know exactly what it is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the believers with khawf. With khawf. And khawf means fear. Uh, there's another word, khashya, which is also fear, but it's a little bit different. It's a fear based on knowledge and, and awe, haybah. So Allah Ta'ala describes the believers, وَخَافُونِ إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ you know, Fear me if you are truly believers. If you're truly mu'min, have fear of me. Likewise, uh, do not fear the people. فَلَا تَخَافُوهُمْ وَخَافُونِ Do not fear the people, but fear me. And Allah Ta'ala says, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ It is only those who truly know who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we'll, go, we'll come back to that verse uh, soon. So what exactly is it? How do we define the fear of Allah ta'ala? We, we have a really beautiful definition or explanation from Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah. In his Ihya, he says that the reality of fear is a pain and a burning of the heart Metaphorically speaking, a burning of the heart due to anxiety over something hated that may bring a painful outcome in the future. This could be the result, a result of sins, or it could be fear of Allah by way of knowing His attributes that necessarily induce fear. In this degree, the latter, for certain, is completer and more perfect. One who knows Allah must necessarily fear Him. For this reason, Allah said, Among the servants, it is only the scholars who truly fear Allah. Now, 
before I unpack this definition a little bit, let's just go back to the previous slide. Uh, the bottom one, I, I translate the verse a little bit differently here. In the bottom, I translate the verse as only those who truly know fear, uh, know Allah, fear Him. Right? The word in the Arabic is ulama, right? You hear the word ulama and you think scholar, right? But are there scholars who don't fear Allah? Most certainly. Most certainly. I mean, they have ilm, they have knowledge, but it, it hasn't impacted them and they act in a way of someone who doesn't truly fear Allah Ta'ala. So when Allah Ta'ala says, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاء It doesn't just mean people who know stuff. It means those who truly know, right? Imam Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali, he says that you have those who are, uh, they have knowledge of the ahkam of Allah, the rulings of God, and they have knowledge of God. Then you have those who have knowledge of God, but they don't have a lot of knowledge about the rulings of God. But then you have those who have knowledge of the rulings of Allah and knowledge of Allah Himself. And of course, there's a fourth one who know neither Allah nor His ahkam. When Allah Ta'ala says, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ It is only the ulama who truly fear Allah. It doesn't just mean uh, scholars of fiqh or scholars of hadith uh, in, the, in, the, in the sense that we understand the word uh, scholar. It means those who truly know. That's what it means. This means that a person can be يعني, on the surface, Rajul Ammi, not a scholar, but they have true fear of Allah because they know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So going back to this definition of Imam al-Ghazali, notice that he says that the haqiqah, the reality of fear, is a, a pain and a burning of the heart due to anxiety over something hated that may bring a painful outcome in the future. Right? Punishment in the grave. Punishment in the hellfire. Uh, punishments on the Day of Judgment, you know, the, or, or consequences in this life due to one's sins. Now he says that this fear could be the result of sins, right? So they, they have this feeling. Or it could be fear of Allah by way of knowing His attributes that necessarily induce fear. Meaning they're not, their fear of Allah is not based on some sin they did. Their fear of Allah is based on their knowledge of who Allah is, Jalla Jalaluhu wa Taqaddasat Asma'uhu, the divine, Al Azim, Al Mutakabbir, Al Ali, right? The, the majestic, right? So they have this knowledge of Allah and it induces a sense of great awe, Haiba, right? And that is a kind of fear that Imam Ghazali says is Akmal wa Atam. It is uh, completer and more perfect. He says, one who knows Allah must necessarily fear Him. And this is why Allah says, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ And when the, the scholars talk about the fear of Allah, uh, they often talk about the levels. And we'll talk about these levels, and then we talk about how it's cultivated and what it looks like. The ulama, they say that there's basically three levels of fear. 
And this is the same for other virtues too. They say three levels. You have the, the fear of the amma, or just the regular people, you know, common folk. Then you have the fear of the khasa, right? The, the, the elite of a higher level. Then you have the fear of khasatul khasa, the elite of the elite, at the pinnacle. So they say that the fear of the common folk is fear of adab, fear of punishment. And that is a bare minimum, right? The fear of the punishment of Allah Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala mentions this in a number of verses, right? Those who fear his adab, right? That's a quality of the believers. So fear of Allah's punishment is the bare minimum for iman. If a person doesn't fear Allah Ta'ala whatsoever, then they're lacking in iman. But you have to be careful. Because the, the, one of the early imams, he said that if someone asks you, do you fear Allah? Don't say yes or no. Don't say yes or no. Because if you say no, you're not a believer. But if you say yes, that's a big claim. That's a big Who can say, I fear Allah? Right? The prophets can say that. And Allah mentions that in the Quran, Inni Allah. Right? Many of them said that. But we can't make that claim. We ask Allah to give us that khawf, to give us that fear of Allah Ta'ala. But we don't make claims and say, you know, Anakha if sahibu khashya and all of that. So the reason why fear of Allah is essential is because those who believe in the akhirah they recognize that the wa'id, the divine threats, are real. And because they believe in the hereafter, they believe that the divine threats are real, they realize the gravity of sins and shortcomings, they understand this is a reality and something worth fearing. And Allah Ta'ala mentions it so many times in the Qur'an. You can barely turn a page in the Qur'an, except that you find a verse mentioning something about fear, something about Jahannam. Something about Jannah, something about the unseen that induces fear. So that's the bare minimum, to have that fear of adab. But there are higher levels. There are higher levels than just fearing the hellfire. And that's where we get to the next level, which is the uh, fear of the khasa, or the elite. Meaning these are people of a higher degree of iman, a higher degree of knowledge of Allah Ta'ala, a higher degree of taqwa. And the fear of the elite is the fear of being made distant and remote from Allah Ta'ala. So there is fear of adab, but above that there is fear of al-tard wal-ib'ad wal-hijab, right? A fear of being made distant from Allah Ta'ala. Right? What is the worst punishment of, of the hellfire? It's not the varieties of punishments described in the Qur'an. Those things are frightening, and may Allah protect all of us. Ameen. But those are not the greatest punishments. The greatest punishment of hellfire is being veiled from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah ta'ala making that person distant and remote, not ever having the rida of Allah ta'ala. That is worse than the, the physical punishments. 
right? Because the punishment of hell is not just physical. It's also a punishment to the ruh, to the soul. And that feeling of distance and remoteness is far worse than the physical. So this is a higher degree. They're also afraid of not having their good deeds accepted. They're not just afraid of the sins or the consequences of the sins. They're afraid of their deeds not being accepted. They don't presume that, oh yeah, I got it made, all my deeds are accepted, I'm good to go. All right, this is not the way of the mu'min. And we find that in the hadith recorded by Imam al-Tirmidhi, where Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha had asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam about the verse, وَالَّذِينَ يُؤْتُونَ مَا أَتَوْ وَقُلُوبُهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ إِلَىٰ رَبِّهِمْ رَاجِعُونَ Allah describes the believers saying, and those who do whatever they do, right? Now you see here in the translation, in the parentheses, good. That's the tafsir. But take that out. And who do whatever they do with their hearts fearful, knowing that they will return to their Lord. So say the Aisha, she reads this verse. And those who do whatever they do, and their hearts are fearful, knowing that they will return to their Lord. So she asks the Prophet ﷺ, are these people in the verse, described in the verse, are these the people who drink alcohol and who steal? Are they the ones who are going to their Lord with their hearts fearful? The Prophet ﷺ said, no, ya bint al-Siddiq, no, O daughter of a siddiq they are the ones who fast. They're the ones who pray, they're the ones who give charity, while they fear that their Lord will not accept it from them. Right? That's what it means. So it's not just describing people who do bad things, it's describing people who do good, but they have a fear that maybe there's something, you know, things that taint the action so that it wouldn't be accepted. And they worry about that. And then the Prophet ﷺ recited the next verse in this chapter, Surah Mu'minun. That gives the full context of the verse. It is they who hasten to do good deeds and they are the foremost. Right? They are the ones who have that fear. The ones who are yusari'una. Right? They hasten to do good and they are the foremost in doing good. So that's a higher degree of fear. Not just about punishment. It's about being veiled, being made distant, as well as not having one's actions accepted. But there's a level above this even. And this level we just read about and hear about. It's not one that we can say, like, I get there one day, right? And that is the fear of khasatul khasa, the elite of the elite. And this is the fear of being veiled due to su'ul adab, bad adab. And what this is, is haiba. It is the great feeling of awe and majesty. And this is the fear of the prophets and those who are muqarrabun, the elite of the elite of the, the awliya and the salihun, the highest degrees. And when a person is at that degree, it's not that they don't have the other degrees. They have those degrees too, but they have this as well. And this is the fear of being veiled due to bad adab. Right, you see sometimes, you know, the prophets of Allah Ta'ala, the Anbiya and the Rusul, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala 
imposes upon them a much higher standard of adab that, that he does upon those who are not prophets. So a lot of the, the du'as or the verses where you have the prophets expressing fear, it's not because, oh, they were going around doing bad things by our standard. But there were things that, you know, it's hard to explain this, but you have to understand the prophets of Allah Ta'ala are receiving wahi. They're receiving revelation. And they are constantly being increased in their knowledge of Allah Ta'ala. They're not like you or I. You know, we, you know, we go up and down. You have your high points, you have your low points. The prophets all have high points. And it just gets higher. Meaning the knowledge of Allah is constantly increasing. Allah is continually unveiling to them and disclosing to them divine realities. So Imam al-Bajuri talks about this and says that because the prophets are constantly ascending in their knowledge of Allah Ta'ala, when they look back on the previous moments or the previous day, like that level of knowledge yesterday compared to that increase today, when they look back on it, it's like, subhanAllah. You know, the, the, the degree of adab required when they reflect back, it's a different level altogether. We, can't, we can only describe it. We can't, we can't taste it. We can just describe it. So, uh, to, to conclude on the issue of uh, fear and the levels, the scholars say that fear of Allah Ta'ala does not refer to the feelings of fear only that occur to the heart. It is the internal state that drives a person away from the haram and drives them towards obedience. Right? Because there are... People could say, you know, I feel bad, I feel, I feel, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of Allah's punishment. But it's not actually driving them away from the haram. They say, I feel fear. But it's not driving them to ta'ah, to obedience. Right? So that feeling in itself is not what is sought after. What is sought after is that feeling of fear that drives a person away from the haram and drives them towards obedience. It has to be combined with action. And the action here is often tark, which is not, you know, tark literally means to purposely avoid something. So you're not literally doing something, but you are doing by omission. You cut this thing out of your life. You know, you're not doing it anymore. If that is spurred by fear, that is the positive virtue we're talking about. Not just the feeling that doesn't transform the person's behavior. So that's fear in a nutshell. Now the question that comes up is, well, how do we develop this? It's a lifelong process. And we can, you know, we can only remind ourselves of these things. How does a, one, does a person cultivate fear of Allah Ta'ala? Uh, there are a number of things. Number one, the scholars say, is uh, deliberately purposely reading the Qur'an while reflecting on its meanings. If you understand the verses of Allah Ta'ala in the Qur'an and read them and reflect, you realize they are meant to induce fear, right? Takhweef, reading the Qur'an with purpose. Number two, they say, is calling to mind how serious and terrifying the matter of sin is. Uh, if you like to read... One book I would recommend, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend the whole book, but the first chapter at least, is 
the book Al-Jawab uh, Al-Kafi or Al-Dawa, the, the Sickness and the Cure by Ibn Qayyim Al-Jawziyah. Uh, in this book, the first chapter is all about the, the ill effects of sins. And he goes over about 70 plus negative effects of sins. It's a very moving, powerful description of the negative impacts of sins. What do you think the first negative impact he mentions is? Hmm? Nope. He says it is the removal of true knowledge. The removal of ilm. Right? You know, there's the famous line from Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah. He went to his teacher, Al-Waqi'i. Shakautu ila waqi'i su'a hifthi fa'arshadani ila tark al-ma'asi. I went to uh, my teacher, Waqi'i, and I complained about my poor memory. Which is ironic, coming from Imam Shafi'i, who had to cover one page when looking at a book, because he would memorize the two pages and get them jumbled up. But he complained of his poor memory to his teacher, Al-Waqi'i, and in the poem he says, فَأَرْشَدَنِي إِلَىٰ تَرْكِ الْمَعَاصِي he, he, he guided me that I must uh, forsake disobedience. Now, there's a backstory to that poem. You know, what was the sin he was talking about? He says that it, what had happened was he was in the marketplace, I believe. And, you know, it's a marketplace. There's people hustle and bustle. And he saw a woman's bangle on her foot, on her ankle. And he was looking at it. After that, he had a difficult time memorizing. That was the sin. Compare that to today. What, what would Mehmet Shafi'i say if he was around today? Delatif. <laughs> He'd go to the mountains probably. Yeah. So that's a good book. Uh, number three, striving to obey Allah Ta'ala and avoid the haram. Right? So fear of Allah Ta'ala is a catalyst for this. Right? And, and this goes back to the, how did we describe it when we talked about the inward and the outward? There's a reciprocal relationship. Where the, the outward reflects the inward. The inward reflects the outward. If you work on the inward, it should reflect on the outward. And if you work on the outward, it should start to change the inward. It goes, they go hand in hand in tandem. Likewise, if you strive to obey Allah and stay away from the haram, okay, that is motivated by fear, but by doing so, you increase your iman and you have higher fear. So it works both ways. Um, that's one way. And lastly, actually there's more. <laughs> there's more uh, on this list on the, of the slide. Respecting the hudud of Allah. In many verses of the Quran, Allah Ta'ala mentions the importance of uh, Respecting the hudud of Allah, the limits of Allah. What is haram? Haram, as we say to the kids, it's not that everything is haram except for a few exceptions. The haram literally means the boundaries, right? And the boundaries are there for our own protection. So to respect the hudud of Allah, the boundaries set by Allah, one will avoid getting into those areas where they put themselves in spiritual danger, right? So respecting the hudud of Allah helps. Also knowing Allah's names and attributes, knowing the meanings of these names like Al-Ali, Al-Azim, Al-Jabbar, Al-Qahar, Al-Mutakabbir, 
all of these names of Jalal, of majesty. Likewise, pondering the stories of those who feared Allah and how they reached this status by means of faith and righteous deeds. Imam al-Ghazali says, studying and learning the biographies of the prophets and the companions is a means of instilling fear of Allah. For if one is not affected immediately, one will be affected later on. Right? That means we're never going to reach a stage where we can say, okay, I have all the fear of Allah I need. I don't need to hear any more stories. We always need reminders. We always need reminders. And if this reminder hasn't made an impact today, maybe it made a little bit of a dent. And maybe later on, when we're reminded again, it'll make an impact. Maybe something will happen where that story inspires us. We remember it. So these stories are beneficial. The tarajim, the manaqib, the stories of how they used to be and exercise the fear of Allah, they impact us, they benefit us. Uh, number seven, reflecting on the verses that speak of punishment and warnings, descriptions of hell and the condition of its inhabitants and what they will suffer of eternal misery, wretchedness and torment. Uh, uh, if you'd like to read, I think the best book for this would be the... Uh, it is, I think it's the last book, yeah. I think it's the 40th book of the Ihya, which is Kitab Dhikrul Mawt wa Ma Ba'dahu, the book on mention of death and what occurs after death by Imam al-Ghazali. It's been translated into English many years ago. It's available. That is a very, very powerful book. And uh, there's another book. Uh, there's a book, it was translated into English, I think, in the 70s. And I don't remember the name of the author, but he was Pakistani. And the English title was The Spectacle of Death. And this book was widely available in the English bookstores in Pakistan back in the day. And it made its way here. That's also a very good book. And I think you'll find it online, The Spectacle of Death. Uh, Number eight, reflecting on the stories of the wrongdoers and sinners whom Allah punished for their sins. So kind of a corollary number six. So the stories, not just of the of fear of Allah, but on those who didn't have it and what happened to them. Those things are moving. So having spoken about hope, uh, fear, let's talk about hope. We said the two go hand in hand. You can't have fear without hope. You can't have hope without fear. Uh, what is hope? Ar-raja, right, in Arabic. Ar-raja is defined as desiring what is with Allah, with the condition that one works to acquire the means to it. Right? If you are in the middle of the Sahara and you're not receiving wahi, I'm going to add that. You're not receiving wahi, you're not a prophet. You're in the middle of the desert and you build a boat, nice boat. And then you sit there and you're waiting to sail the seven seas. Are you ever going to set sail? Because you built the ship on dry land, far away from the coast in the middle of the desert, right? You can hope as much as you want to, unless there's some miracle, you're not going to end up on the sea, right? So there has to be active working to acquire the means to it. You know, you're working for what you're hoping in. That's an important condition. Uh, Another definition is that hope is the heart's attachment to something that is. Mahbub, beloved, 
that will come in the future, right? So it's almost the same thing. It's like saying hope is hope. We know what hope means. But we add this important condition that a person is working towards it, that a person is actively seeking that which they hope in. And we have to explain that because if you don't explain it with that condition, then it's not hope anymore. It's tamanni. It's wishful thinking, right? And wishful thinking is not true hope. What is the difference between hope and wishful thinking? The ulama say that hope is something that drives you forward, right? Because when you really hope in something, you seek it. You look for it. And you avoid the things that will block you and prevent you from that which you're hoping in, right? Wishful thinking, on the other hand, is accompanied by laziness, by inaction, right? It's like the person who says, I hope to be a millionaire. And they do nothing. They do absolutely nothing. They don't work. They don't educate themselves. They don't even hustle. They don't do anything. They just hope, right? They're just talking. It's just kalam. That's wishful thinking. Ibn Ata'illah, rahimahullah, he says, Hope is that which is paired with action. And if hope is not paired with action, it is tamanni, it's wishful thinking. That's it. And this is seen in the Qur'an itself. For in the Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala mentions those who believed, those who, الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَهَاجَرُوا And they migrated, they made hijrah. وَجَاهَدُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ And they strive in the way of Allah. What does Allah say about them? They did these three things. Iman, Hijrah, and Jihad. أُولَٰئِكَ يَرْجُونَ رَحْمَةَ اللَّهِ It is they who have hope in Allah's mercy. You see? It's linked to them seeking Allah's mercy. So the hope should drive the, one, the person to seek it through these means. And just like with fear, we have to ask, how do we develop hope? We strengthen our iman and conviction in the oneness of Allah by knowing Allah's promises and threats and that Allah Ta'ala does not break His promises. So we hope in the forgiveness and mercy of Allah and what He promises of Jannah. Strengthening that iman strengthens our hope. Also, by knowing that Allah Ta'ala loves those who seek forgiveness. It's really important to highlight this because Allah Ta'ala is not asking us to be perfect. Allah has not placed a demand that you become kamil, ma'asum. That's, that's not for us, right? We're flawed. We make mistakes. But we know Allah Ta'ala loves those who seek forgiveness. And by knowing that and therefore seeking forgiveness, we are seeking and hoping in Allah's forgiveness and mercy. Another way of cultivating raja, hope, is by relying on Allah Ta'ala. This is important because our good deeds do not benefit Allah Ta'ala, right? You, 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 know, you pester your kid to pray and they, they're being lazy about it. Maybe they don't tell you, but maybe they have it in their heads. Why does Allah want me to pray? What, what does He get out of my prayer? Allah gets nothing out of your prayer. Because Allah doesn't have any needs. It's you who needs it, right? 
we don't rely on these actions, however. Allah asks us of, to do these things, but we don't rely on them. Our good deeds don't benefit Allah, and our sins don't harm Allah. That's the basic principle. And we don't rely on our deeds. We rely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If our deeds are good, we ask Allah to accept them. If they are bad, we seek forgiveness and we make tawbah. Right? We don't rely on them. Because we are relying on Allah Ta'ala and not on our deeds, we have hope. If we only had to rely on our deeds, we would lose hope. Think about it. How can our trifling deeds ever match the majesty of Allah? It's impossible. It's inconceivable. Likewise, to cultivate hope, we should know that Allah's rahmah encompasses everything. Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ My mercy encompasses كُلَّ شَيْءٍ Everything. And you are a shay, a thing. I am a shay. Everything is a shay, a thing. Therefore, Allah's rahmah encompasses you and me and everyone. Also, to cultivate hope, we want to know that Allah Ta'ala only tests us to purify and refine our souls, only giving us what we can bear. Why is that important for hope? Because it's easy to lose hope and fall into despair if we think that everything negative, every misfortune is some punishment because Allah hates us. But if you know that tests come to the best of people, and that it's not a sign that a person is hated necessarily, you have hope, right? Another thing is to remember that one of Allah's names is Ash-Shakur. And that means the one who appreciates the small good deeds and doesn't leave any small act unrewarded. Right? The Ash-Shakur, the, the appreciative, that's one of his divine names. And that divine name has to manifest. And it manifests in Allah Ta'ala being pleased with his servants for even the small things they do. So... Nothing that is done sincerely for Allah is really small when Allah accepts it, right? And number seven, to cultivate hope, strengthening hope, be among those devoted servants whom he describes in the Qur'an. فَتَجَافَ جُنُوبُهُمْ عَنِ الْمَضَاجِعِ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ خَوْفًا وَطَمَعًا وَمِمَّا رَزَقْنَاهُمْ يُنْفِقُونَ He describes the believers as those who forsake their sides from their beds, you know, they get up and they pray, and they call upon their Lord, خَوْفًا وَطَمَعًا These two things are combined. Fear and hope. Tama'a is another word for hope, or longing. And out of what they have, we have provided, they spend. So to be among those people. And lastly, and I put a really, this, number, this last one is really important. You have to, to have hope in Allah Ta'ala, you have to banish from your mind, banish, remove from your heart this idea that Allah hates you. There's so many Muslims, they may not say it in public, but they say it in private, and they share it with some people. They feel, because of the challenges in their life, they feel as if somehow Allah hates them. I've heard this from people. Many people, they have this idea that Allah hates them, that Allah 
wishes to punish them. Right? They've been fed this steady diet of hell, hell, hell. Any little thing you do, you're going to hell. And, you know, this comes from family sometimes. It comes from society sometimes or the Islamic discourse that they're consuming. But that attitude comes. This idea that Allah is out to punish them or out to get them. This has to be banished from the heart because this is the, the disease of despair, despairing of Allah's mercy. And if a person wonders, does Allah hate me? They should just ask themselves one simple question. Did Allah not make that person from the ummah of Rasulullah If they are from the ummah, they're mahbub. We have different levels. Not everyone's at the same level, of course. But if you're from the ummah of Rasulullah you are mahbub indallah. And he gives you to, according to his rahmah and the degree he's apportioned to you. That is sufficient cause for joy. For the believers, on that frightening day of the Day of Judgment, we recognize we want to be gathered under the banner of Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa so if you're from that ummah, Allah bless you to be from this ummah, you have no reason to despair. You have no reason to lose hope. You have no reason to feel Allah hates you. If Allah truly hated someone, they wouldn't be from the ummah. That doesn't mean they may not face consequences for the things they're doing in this life. That's why we want to learn these things, make tawbah, make that a constant, so that inshallah as we leave the world, we're cleansed of all of that. So we're we're good to go, inshallah, and Allah overlooks our faults and gives us mercy, especially in in, in this end of time that we're in. So that's what we say about hope. Now what's left, yes, we have enough time, inshallah. The last virtue. Of the spiritual virtues that are obligatory to know about is the virtue of mahabbah. Mahabbatullahi subhanahu wa ta'ala, love of Allah ta'ala, and love of what Allah loves. Now, for fear, for hope, for patience, for all the other virtues, we've given definitions. For love, it's not so easy to define. How would you define love? Right? Like for those of you who studied the aqidah, when we talked about ilm and we tried to define ilm, you probably realize that the definition of ilm is more obscure than the word ilm itself. And so the, the definition actually adds obscurity because ilm is so daruri, it's so self-evidently known that the definition just makes it sound more confusing. Love is like that too. How do you define the word love? The ulama, they say that love cannot be defined with a definition that is clearer than it already is. There's lots of definitions for sure. But they say that these definitions are, are actually more, they're more limiting. They actually limit it more than it truly is. And what they're doing is really adding, adding ghumud, adding obscurity. So definitions are used for sciences, right? Uh, it has to be inclusive and exclusive. It's used for ulum, for sciences. But love is not uh, 
It's not like that. It's, it's a state of the heart. It's an experience of the heart. It's something that is tasted. And for this reason, the scholars say that whatever has been said regarding the definition of love is just an explanation about the effects of love, the traces of love, right? It's fruits, it's outcomes, it's causes. It's not defining it for what it is. It's not explaining its mahiya, its essence. So where does that leave us? What is love? I'll give you the definition, something of a definition. Uh, I mentioned this in Ramadan, in the Ramadan series we were doing on the 20 virtues. A very famous uh, narration. Uh, this is mentioned by Imam al-Qushayri in his Risala. Uh, and this is in a narration from Imam Junaid al-Baghdadi, Sayyid al-Ta'ifa. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Kattani says, telling the story, that a discussion about love took place in Mecca. Junaid is Baghdadi, he's from Baghdad, but they were there for Hajj. So, Mashayikh, Ulama, Salihun, they're all gathered together in a majlis. And they start having a conversation about love. What is love? What is the essence of love? How, you, how do you define it? And as they're talking about this, Junaid was the youngest of them. Uh, he was a shab, still a young man at this time. And these are all elders. So, in the conversation, it, it, it came to him. They turned to him. They said, Ya Iraqi. Oh, Iraqi, what do you say about love? And Imam Junaid, he lowered his head and then he began crying and he said the following words. He says, a servant, no, he doesn't say love, he says a servant who has left his own self, yeah, he's, he's absent from his nafs, continuous in the dhikr of his Lord establishes the rights of his Lord, looking upon him with his heart. The light of all, Haiba, has set his heart ablaze. It is a drink from the vessel of the true, of the, true, of the, of the vessel of true and pure love. Al-Jabbar, here I say the compelling one, but it can also mean the one that mends from Jabr uncovers for him the veils of his unseen. So when he talks, it is by Allah, Billah. When he speaks, it is from Allah, min Allah. And when he moves, it is bi amrillah, by the command of Allah. And when he is serene, yani sakin, he is with Allah. So he is billahi, warillahi, wa ma'allah. Right? Now, that's not defining love, it's defining the state of a person who has it. So we know what love is, but this is a spiritual virtue that we end on. And there's levels, obviously, but every Muslim, every mu'min has love. You have to have that, right? And there's degrees. But how do we cultivate it? How do we build it? This actually is more complicated than it seems because, right, you, you hear things like it is obligatory, it's wajib to have love for Allah, love for the Messenger, love for what Allah loves, right? But, you know, imagine you tell your, imagine you tell your, your, your children, you know, you kids, it is obligatory for you to love each other. How do they make themselves love? their siblings. 
It's something that's natural, right? Among siblings. It goes up and down. Things may affect it. But, you know, how can you make an emotion obligatory? Is it possible? And this goes to the question. Is love wahbi? Is it something that is bestowed by Allah? Or is it kasbi, something you can acquire? Right? You know, in reality, it's wahbi. In reality, it's something Allah gives you. But that doesn't mean that you can't take steps to receive that. And that you can't do things to remove the obstacles that block you from receiving that. Right? So think of it as something that is from Allah Ta'ala. It is something Allah has to give you. If Allah gives you that, He gives it to you. But there are obstacles. There are things that block it. So one of the ways of acquiring that is removing the obstacles. right? Doing the things that make you susceptible to receiving that from Allah Ta'ala. And among these means, the scholars mention so many things. They mention reciting the Qur'an with tadabbur, with true contemplation and reflection, seeking to understand its meanings, to read with a purpose. And they say, it is to read the Qur'an as if you are hearing it directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or as if you are hearing it recited by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? So you're reciting, you know, your, your daily hizb or juz, or you're doing muraja'ah, you're reviewing what you've memorized, whatever you're reading for. Um, this is different. This is reading as a risada from your Lord. You're hearing it from Allah Ta'ala or from the Prophet وسلم, reciting it to you. you know, that is a higher level. The other means of love is nawafil, extra good deeds, voluntary good deeds, after you establish the obligatory. And that's from the Hadith Qudsi where the Prophet mentions that Allah says, that my servant does not draw nearer to me with anything more beloved than that which I have made obligatory. And he continues to draw close. He continues to draw close to me through nawafil. Until I love him. So that's where this comes from. Remembrance of Allah Ta'ala in every state. With the tongue, the heart. Actions, had preferring what Allah loves over what you love, especially during times in which the lower passions overcome the servant, uh, and to scale the levels of his love, even if it may be difficult. Now, what that means is one of the ways of acquiring the love of Allah Ta'ala is to sacrifice for the sake of Allah. Right? There's a temptation presenting itself before you and you can either do this thing that's haram or you can leave it for Allah. You choose to leave it for Allah's sake out of love for Him even though you really want to do that thing. When you do that, that will increase your love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's hadith to this effect. Allowing the heart to witness, experience and know His names and attributes and to move about in the garden of this knowledge. Whoever knows Allah by his names, attributes, and actions will love him by necessity. Now what this means, so I'm, I'm drawing this from uh, one of the, 
remember which book it was. Ibn Qayyim, he lists these out. Uh, what that means is to witness Allah. But what does that mean to witness Allah? Allah Ta'ala is not beheld in this world. What it means is to witness the effects of his names and attributes in this realm and witness him as the doer, right? So when you see a mother showing great mercy and compassion to her infant child, you are seeing the effect of the divine name Ar-Rahman, right? Or Ar-Rahim, right? You're seeing the manifestation of the effect of that name. When you see that this person was living in a very bad way and really suffering and distant from Allah, but Allah guided them and blessed them and raised them up to a better state with Allah, you are witnessing in that person's life the effects of the name of Allah, Ar-Rafi'ah, the one who elevates. Right? So it's to witness the things around us and see them as the manifestations of the effects of these divine names. Because the divine names are meant to be understood and we see the effects of them. The Prophet ﷺ pointed out to the effects of these names in creation. Right? That is what we mean here. When a person does that, they really engage with the world around them and see the effects of Allah's as al-Khaliq, right? You just you watch a nature show, you say subhanallah, look at that thing in the ocean that does that crazy thing that's unbelievable. Subhan al-Khalaq, right? You're you're seeing the manifestation of the divine name al-Khalaq, al-Khaliq, al-Bari, al-Musawwir, all of these names. So when you link those names to the, the effects of them in the world, that increases you, you in love for Allah Ta'ala. Uh, and lastly, to witness His kindness, favors, and goodness, outwardly and inwardly, right? To basically reflect on the blessings, right? That, that goes hand in hand with shukr. So the more a person has shukr, the more they're going to have love for Allah Ta'ala, right? So these are just some of the means of increasing in love. And we have the dua of the Prophet ﷺ. He mentions from the dua of Prophet Dawood ﷺ. He would say, Allahumma inni as'aluka hubbak wa hubba man yuhibbuka wa hubba amalin yuqarribuni ila hubbik. Oh Allah, I ask you for your love and the love of those whom you love and the love of those deeds that draw me closer to your love. That is a dua you can make as well. And Alhamdulillah, you know, we ask Allah for that and to give us all of these virtues and to increase us in all of them uh, and to remove all of those vices that we discussed in this module 10. So this is the end of module 10. Alhamdulillah wa shukrulillah salihat. Module 11 will start next week without any break. Insha'Allah ta'ala. And that is, it was going to be Aqeedah 102 but I'm going to rename it to miscellanea because it touches on many different issues that are more uh, modern, contemporary issues that are fard'ayn for us to know now because of umum al-balwa, the general condition of the world that we find ourselves in. Things that may not have been fard'ayn on people in the past so directly, but which are fard for us because of the environment. 
inshallah we'll start that next week bi-ithnillahi ta'ala wallahu rasuluhu a'lamu sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam yes next week is oh yeah so we do have a break i totally forgot we have the youth group retreat uh so yeah okay so no no class it's for the kids yeah i won't i won't be here yeah so there is a break okay alhamdulillah thank you for reminding me that would have been really awkward if i showed up and any questions? Yeah. Crying, right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, um, there's two perspectives here. So he's asking about the issue of balancing between hope and fear, uh, how that's to be done. There's actually two perspectives here. Uh, the first perspective, which is the perspective of, I suppose, is the majority, is that they say, yes, hope and fear have to be balanced. But if the person is younger and they have a stronger drive of shahwa, desires, the fear should be slightly more than the hope because the drive of shahwa is stronger the push towards haram is stronger than in someone who is older and when a person is older nearing the end of their life hope should predominate over the fear because the drive for the sins uh, is less is weaker because they are now in their old age and they're nearing their exit from this world so they should leave with the state of hope so they say that it should tilt more towards hope. Uh, that is the, the perspective of the majority. Uh, another perspective, which I believe it doesn't contradict this perspective, but it's, I think it's a higher way of looking at it, is to never presume that you're going to make it till you're 80 years old where you can have hope dominate over fear, or to think that you're not going to die tomorrow, right? Uh, one of the scholars of Andalusia, he famously said that uh, you want to have a state where with every inhale and exhale, you're not, you know, you're not so sure that you're going to live. So let your inhale be with, uh, and your exhale be with husn al-dhan billah, having a good opinion of Allah Ta'ala. So that when Allah takes you, He takes you in that state, right? not to get caught up in these artificial times thinking okay well i'm young therefore fear has to predominate now until i am 60. you know it's kind of arbitrary there's there are people in their 60s who have desires just as strong as 20 year olds uh and, and if they're not as strong physically uh they still have a mental attachment to those desires right and we find that in the hadith of the prophet وسلم, he mentions of those people uh, uh, whom Allah will not gaze upon on the day of judgment, yeah. Yeah, it will, will, yeah. one of them is a Sheikh Zani, described as the, the older person who is a fornicator. Why? Why do they get extra punishment? It's because 
they don't really have the dawa'i shahwa like they would in their 20s, but they're going out of their way anyway. Right? And you see that in this society. Um, anyhow, I got off track a little bit. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily that we have to have this artificial number and say, you know, it should always dominate. Fear should always dominate until you're at a certain age, and then it should be hope. I think it should also be a case-by-case basis, right? There are some people who, because of their upbringing or the society or the kind of Islamic discourse they're consuming, they come to feel this overwhelming sense of despair and fear that overcomes them to the point of it being paralyzing, where they despair of Allah's mercy and fear that feel that they're doomed. And you had that discourse for many, many years, especially in the Middle East. And what came about as a result? Daesh. Daesh, ISIS, that group. A lot of those kids were out doing all sorts of muharramat and so distant from the deen. And then they came back to the deen, but they came with such fear and all this baggage from their past. They felt that the only way I can get rid of all of this, Allah is going to put me in hell, unless I go and do all of these things. You have to go really extreme. That's very dangerous. That's not always the message to give to young people either, right? At the same time, it can't be just hope and love and flowers and jannah to the point where, ah, yattakilu. You know, they just rely on that and they don't care about what they do. It's case by case basis. Uh, we can't overemphasize mercy and not also have a healthy amount of hell, fire, and brimstone talks of, of inducing the fear of Allah. We just have to be wise about it. Wallahu Yeah, to match the had, right? There, I mean, there are people who they need more hope-inspiring reminders and to be led in that direction because of the way they are. There are some who they have too much hope and they don't. They need they need some fear of Allah in their life, you know. So you give a custom prescription to the person, no matter what their age is. Alhamdulillah. Jazakumullah wa anakhir.